Hello, ASPN listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Big Tourism with your host, Erica Sears. Well, I hope you have your bags packed with a camera and a lots of rain gear because you are about to become a citizen scientist. Did you know that visitors to the Oregon coast are able to document the impacts of sea level rise during the highest winter tides each year, the king tides? The King Tides Project is an international grassroots effort to document areas flooded by the highest winter tides. It started in Australia in 2009 and has since spread to the United States and elsewhere around the world, including, of course, the Oregon coast. As some listeners may know, I work for the Oregon Coast Visitors Association, or ACFA, which is a regional destination management organization that works on projects with partners along the entire Oregon coast. Our organization released a 10-year mitigation, adaptation, and resiliency plan, which you can actually learn more about in the last episode of Big Tourism with our climate scientist, Patty Martin, and Coastal Tourism Resiliency Coordinator, Finn Johnson. But before we started officially working on climate action as an organization, we played a small part in supporting the Oregon King Tides Project via a photo contest. So here to dive deeper into the photo contest, the King Tides project in general, and even about sea level level rise is one of the key program partners, the Oregon Coastal Management Program with their coastal policy specialist, Meg Reed. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Meg. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So the first question I have for you is... um, what is the first location on the Oregon coast that you think of when you think of a major King Tides event? So if a, if a journalist called and was like, hey, I really want to see an example of sea level rise, where should I go on the Oregon coast? Uh, where would you point them to? Well, this is probably no surprise to you, Erica, but I'd probably point them to downtown Nehalem, uh, which is a small town on the northern Oregon coast that is actually a little bit inland from the ocean um, along a river, the Nehalem Nehalem River, but they experience a lot of sort of what is known as sunny day flooding. So that is sort of the flooding that can occur even when it's not a big storm or big rain event. And the the, uh, highest high tides, which are the king tides, really do impact this community and they can really flood the downtown area, which is actually where Coast Highway 101 goes through. So it can be um, a pretty big impact to that community and it pretty much impacts them all the time. Yeah, that's that is the exact example I always think of as well. And something that always strikes me is um, I'm in a lot of like what's up groups in Facebook, like what's up Nahalem, what's up Tillamook County. Just it's like an interesting way to get information for the entire Oregon coast. And in Nahalem, when those huge tides come, um, you know people can like kayak down Highway 101. Uh, a lot of times, those stores do close down due to that flooding. But what happens is that traffic continues to go through that intersection. And so the business owners put up signs that say like, no wake, like don't cause a wake <laughs> by driving too fast. <laughs> yeah, And it's, it's totally understandable. They don't want da- further damage to their buildings. But I always think like that is such a unique sign to see on Highway 101 is no wake. <laughs> yeah. And that they it happen so frequently that they have signs to display that. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they're like, all right, get the sign out. It's happening again. (laughs) Uh, Excellent. So let's, you know, I talked about it a little bit in the introduction, but what actually is a king tide? Why do they happen? Where do they occur? Why is this important? 
Well, it kind of comes down to just the basics about tides. Um, so, you know, we do have this gravitational pull on the Earth from the moon and the sun, which causes tides. So it just creates a bulge in the water when as the Earth rotates. And so we end up having two high tides and two low tides every day in coastal areas. And what happens is when the moon and the sun and the earth are all in alignment with each other in a straight line, and when the moon is in its closest part of its orbit to the earth and the earth is in its closest part of its orbit to the sun, it creates a greater gravitational pull on the water. So you have the highest highs as well as the lowest lows. And they happen about six times a year. And uh, it's also the scientific name is perigean spring tide but as you mentioned earlier it started in australia that they sort of coined the term king tides um, because they were really they were having set to have very very big tides in 2009 and they thought it would be interesting to have people go out and take pictures and so that kind of happens everywhere everywhere where there are tides we have these king tides occur at certain points of the year and it can really be quite dramatic um, in how much different the water level is between a regular high tide and a king tide. Some places on the Oregon coast can have a difference of about three feet. And if you add things like winter storms and big rain events, as well as storm surge, on top of that, you can have really big water levels that can be quite impactful. So on the Oregon coast, um, we have sort of a very straight coastline on the outer coast, and then we have many estuaries where the tide goes up into those areas like Coos Bay and Yaquina Bay and the Columbia River and so on. And so it can really have an impact in those areas. And that generally leads to flooding. But on the outer coast, it can be really impactful through erosion because it's reaching the back of the beach more often. And so it can cause more erosion of dunes and bluffs. Um, and they typically are more detrimental in the winter time because of the fact that we also get those big winter storms in the winter. So it's um, that combination of water that we call total water levels that ends up being really impactful in the winter time. We also have king tides in the summer, but they the high part of that occurs usually in the middle of the night, so not a great time to go out and look at that. Um, but that's when we have the really, really low tides, which are really great for tide pools and razor clamming and things like that. So those occur in the summer, and so a lot of people come out to the coast to take advantage of those low tides that happen in the summer. You know, that's great information. And I think, um, you know, anybody listening to this can be like, wow, that sounds amazing. I want to hear, you know, I want to see the no wake signs. I want to see, you know, major flooding is interesting. We also see like these major waves. Storm watching is a, is a huge activity for tourists. Um, but in addition to just like the awe of nature and the power of the ocean, why why is the King Tides Project important? They're important because it it, like I said, it can really have major impacts on our coastal communities and on the environment. And it is also a way to sort of get a glimpse of what will become more commonplace when we have more sea level rise. We already are starting to experience some sea level rise on the Oregon coast, but it is fairly small, especially compared to some of the, our other coastal states. But it 
when you have a king tide, you have that extreme water level, which can be, like I said, up to three feet. So you have these really big events that cause erosion, can cause flooding. They can lead to people losing property in front of their house. It can lead to um, flooding the roads, like we talked about in the Halem, flooding 101, which is a major transportation corridor. It can cut off communities who are already fairly rural and isolated on the Oregon coast. Um, so it can really have very real impacts to the communities there. And so it is important to track it and to monitor it over time to see if it's getting worse and also to see where it's impacting, like where are the communities that are experiencing this in a way that is more impactful than some other communities that might be a little bit more resilient because of their geography or some of the adaptation measures they've taken. So I think it's really important to kind of look coastwide and see where these water levels are causing impacts and monitor that over time. Absolutely. And that's that's clearly a huge job to manage that program. So let's talk a little bit about who supports the uh, Oregon King Tides Project. You are here representing the Oregon Coastal Management Program. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is, how it's funded, um, and then also a little bit about your partner, Coastwatch? Yeah, the Oregon Coastal Management Program is part of a larger network. So all coastal states and territories throughout the United States are open to become coastal management programs. And it is a partnership with the federal government through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And it was actually established through the Coastal Zone Management Act of 1972. So we just finished celebrating the 50th anniversary of that really momentous piece of legislation. And it establishes these programs all throughout the country to really think about coastal management as a whole. So thinking about the natural resources, thinking about the economic development, you know, like fisheries and research and um, kelp and aquaculture and all these things kind of at a broad scale. So in Oregon, we have a very uh, large coastal zone. It's watershed based. So it goes from the crest of the coast range out to the edge of the territorial sea, which is three nautical miles from the shore. Um, and all of the coastal cities, counties, and state agencies that have any authority within that coastal zone are part of our coastal management program. So we have seven coastal counties and 32 coastal cities and then many state agency partners, such as the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, Department of State Lands, and so on. And so the, the main lead, the body that leads this whole program is the Department of Land Conservation and Development, which is the agency that I work for. And so we all work together to try to balance these competing interests of resource protection and conservation, as well as economic development and vibrant, resilient coastal communities. And we do this King Tides project in partnership with Coastwatch, which is a volunteer organization that allows their members to adopt a mile of beach, any mile on the Oregon coast, and they have to walk it and report on what they see. So they can talk about, you know, if there's a um, bird die off or some interesting uh, species that they keep seeing wash up or a lot of trash 
match that they find, all these various things. So it was a natural partnership to have them be part of the King Tides because they're already out on the ground observing the coast. And so they can report on what they see through the King Tides and they can take the pictures and submit them to our program. So it's been a really strong partnership and we've been working together on this program since the winter of 2010-2011. So we've had a really long productive partnership that we um, were a small but mighty group to put on this program and ask volunteers to, to submit their pictures. I love that. I think there are a lot of small, mighty groups in the Oregon coast. Uh, that's yes. what makes us such a special region and such um, amazing people working here. Um, it's so interesting to me. I think that a lot of times the topic of climate change or sea level rise feels like a really big topic. Um, the average Joe might be like, I, I don't know what I can do about that. In this case, we're talking about two you know, small but mighty um, organizations that can manage this program. But are there ways that organizations and businesses can also get involved in the King Tides project? Yeah, I think, you know, the organization that you work for, Erica, is a great example of that when you've helped us to put on photo contests every season and provide the prizes and provide some marketing for getting the word out. Uh, that has really helped us increase our participation and increase the t types of audiences that we've reached through the King Tides project. We've also seen the project really grow through even just grassroots, those social media Facebook groups that you mentioned before. Um, they can, if someone sees the King Tides project and they bring it to the group, then it can really spark a whole movement to get more people involved. Um, we've talked to watershed councils and other um, sort of friends groups, friends of the marine reserves groups who have really helped us by partnering on um, local presentations about King Tides or other topics related to sea level rise and other research that's going on in the Oregon coast and really bring it to more people so that they, they know about what's happening on their coast and also how they can participate in the King Tide. So we've really been able to leverage a lot of partnerships. Um, the other thing that has really grown over the last few years is media coverage. We've had lots of all types of media reach out to us from newspapers to radio to TV. And we've really helped to get the word out to more people about um, who, can, what are the King Tides? How can you participate and how can you be safe when you're observing them? Yeah, I've noticed it really blooming in uh, media too. If I just, if you just give it a Google um, <laughs> under the news tab, here's some of the top headlines. Next King Tide, close to 10 feet. What's new for Oregon coast? Uh, king tides are ready to roll onto Oregon coast. Massive king tides are coming back to the Oregon coast. Um, and it kind of goes on. So it is great to see that kind of coverage too, to, to bring that awareness both to um, the safety side of things, but also that call to action, which brings me back to how a resident or visitor can get involved. So we've, um, we've mentioned this, this photo contest. Do you want to chat more about that? Um, what kind of photos uh, that contest is looking for and what kind of photos usually win? Yeah. Well, um, anyone can participate and, and it's the best place to get all the up-to-date information is our website, which is OregonKingTides.net. And that does have some information, more detail about how you can participate. And it also allows you to look at all of the photos we've collected over time, which we have over 4,000 at this point. Um, and we're really looking for photos that show the high water against something familiar. Um, so it really is helpful to see landmarks in the photo, like a bridge 
or stairs or a dock or something where you can really tell that the water is high. So just seeing the open coast and the beach with high water is sometimes really difficult to see that that is high water unless you have a comparison image. So that's another thing that can be really helpful with submitting images is having a comparison of the same spot at a king tide and at an average high tide. And our website does provide tide table information and as well as what is the average high tide for any of the tide stations along the coast. So you, you can know when an average high tide is occurring. Um, and then um, seeing just sort of where they're impacting infrastructure is also really helpful. So like I mentioned before, when it's flooding the road in downtown the Halem, we have a whole library of images from the Halem that kind of show that water across the road. Uh, we also have images of water across railroad tracks in Coos Bay across um, pedestrian pathways in Astoria and so on. So sort of showing how that water is impacting daily life and our developed assets along the coast is also really helpful. And those tend to be the pictures that win the contest. Um, we, we generally have categories every year too, to make sure there's multiple win winners of all of these great photos that we're receiving. So we have one for the big waves, which a lot of people like to take pictures of big waves and do that storm watching, which is really, they're beautiful fit photos and it is really powerful to see, but they are less um, informative to us from a coastal management perspective, but they are still really cool to see. So we have that category. We have coastal flooding, coastal erosion, and um, a comparison shot of that average high tide versus king tide. So those are the photo categories so people can submit for whatever they want. And we do have a photo submission form on our website, and that is really the only way that we accept photos. Um, so posting them on social media and tagging us, while that is really great and we really appreciate that, those photos don't get put into our our long-term database unless they're also submitted through our form on the website. And that's so that we can really capture um, uniform information across everyone's photos. So we really need to know its location. We really need to know the date it was taken. It, it was during a storm event or a high tide or a king, average high tide or a king tide. Um, and, you know, what direction you are facing and what kind of things is the photo showcasing? Is it showcasing infrastructure, limited beach access, or something else. So that is really helpful for us to be able to get that information through the photo submission form. Absolutely. Something I love about the King Tides project too, from a tourism standpoint, is there are a lot of volunteerism opportunities on the Oregon coast, but some of them require so much um, training or so much planning that it can be hard to convince uh, a visitor to do it. Whereas this is something that people visitors are probably already taking these photos, right? Imagine going on vacation and then like the highways underwater. People are like, yes, I'm taking a picture. I'm sending it to my friends. So that's something I really appreciate about it is that it's um, very entry level as far as who, who's able to do it, how much knowledge you need to have about climate change. While at the same time, it is one of the easiest ways for visitors to visitors and residents to interact with climate action and documenting some of these changes to our coast, again, without having to be a scientist or a researcher. Uh, so I think it's very approachable for, for visitors and residents to interact with it. Yeah, I think it's really a great way to just kind of 
understand your environment and that it is always changing, especially for visitors who tend to come in the summertime. The wintertime on the Oregon coast is so completely different than the summertime. And so it's really just a nice way to just kind of see how the environment changes around you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with that can sometimes um, come some public safety needs. So you and I had this interesting conversation, I, I don't know, maybe six months ago or something. And Basically, um, we have a lot of tourism partners, a lot of DMOs that work at a community level and ourselves. And, uh, well, we want to keep our visitors alive. <laughs> and last year's King Tides, um, there was a really a massive effort to do public safety messaging and make sure everybody remained safe. And so that would be, you know, information where to stand, how to take those photos, um, but we overpowered the why of the King Tides photo contest with the how. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the balance between public safety messaging, but also that inspirational King Tide photo taking messaging? Yeah, it is kind of a, a, a balance that you really need to to strike um, because it is it is dangerous at times to be on the Oregon coast in the winter, especially during these high water events. And f- for the most part, we really highly recommend not going on the beach at all during these high water events. I was just in Cannon Beach yesterday, which is on the northern Oregon coast, and it wasn't a king tide, but it was just sort of stormy out and high water and you, you could not access the beach. There was no beach. It was all covered with, with water. And, and I think that's the important thing for people to realize is that the tides, the tidal exchange on the Oregon coast can be quite large. So it can be very low at low tide and very high at high tide. And it's important to know the tide when you're going out onto the beach or into the water and to be aware of that um, so that you are safe. And so really stay off the beach during King Tide's observations, but it's still fine to be off the beach and observing them from afar. And it's still really interesting to see that high water as long as you are being safe. So it's still fine to go out and look at these events. Um, and so, yeah, it is it is hard to reach that balance. And last year we did find that we had less photos submitted than the year before. And so that could be because we were really, um, really talking about the safety messaging and maybe perhaps people were just sort of staying away, which is good. It's good to make sure that people are safe, uh, but it's still okay to, as long as you're being safe, to, to go observe these events. But I will say that the photos we did receive last season were very good. They really were um, taking those pictures that show impacts to our various assets and uh, showing that high water and showing the comparison between a king tide and, and the average high tide. So that was really nice to see the quality of images coming in really high and it has been getting really good every year um, over the past several years. That's fantastic. Um, just to hear that people are taking maybe more of those, those not thoughtful, but those images that you described earlier showing the impact on infrastructure, um, areas that you can identify and that are around familiar objects. So fantastic. Um, hopefully that's partially due to more, our better marketing around it and being more specific in what we're looking for. Um, on the topic of messaging, I'm just curious, I guess, in general, about sea level rise messaging in general um, and through your you know, professional capacity, what you've learned about communicating sea level rise to the general, pop- to the general public and, and how that's going. 
I think we're still learning about the, the appropriate messaging around sea level rise in Oregon. Um, we are experiencing sea level rise at a lower rate than other coastal states, as I mentioned. So that is a good thing. It's a benefit to us. And one of the reasons for that is because we have tectonic uplift, um, which is, I suppose, a blessing and a curse uh, because we do have the Cascadia subduction zone off our coast, which can produce very large earthquakes and tsunamis. And so when that occurs, the next time it occurs, which could be any day now or many years from now, we don't know. Um, it will increase sea level rise very dramatically, very suddenly. So we could have a rise of three to seven feet instantaneously. But on this other sort of chronic scale, we have just the the sea level rise globally is starting to catch up. The rate at which it's, it's rising is catching up with that tectonic uplift here in Oregon. So we are starting to experience small levels of sea level rise now, and it will continue to get larger over time in the coming decades. So it is something that is important for us to plan for and address. But I would say that it's manageable, especially compared to coastal states like Florida or Georgia or Louisiana, where they're experiencing sea level rise at a much higher rate. Um, so talking about it is kind of talking about it in the terms that it's a, it's a serious issue that we need to address, but it's not as overwhelming and scary as some other places seem to be experiencing. So I think that kind of just talking about the practical nature of it is sort of important, especially with practitioners. So people like in public works or in land use planning and so on. But it sort of depends on the community and sort of what their priorities are and what they're thinking about. And we've found that sometimes it's good to talk about sea level rise in the same way that we talk about tsunami planning. Sometimes it's good to separate those things. And sometimes it's good to talk about one and not the other. So it's really kind of interesting. You just sort of have to know your community and know what is their priority and what they feel comfortable addressing at this time and just sort of go with that. So just being nimble, adaptive, and, and going with what the community really wants. So in Clatsop County, for example, we have a project going on where we are really focused on sea level rise adaptation planning. And in Cannon Beach, they're very interested in tackling this issue head on, uh, but they do want to talk about it at, with tsunami preparedness as well. So we're kind of combining those things to the extent that they do have co-benefits. But in other places, we're focusing just on sea level rise and talking just about it in terms of its local impacts on flooding and erosion and how they're already seeing these issues now and that they're just going to continue to get worse. So we really just need to think about how we address those issues that are ongoing. So I think that's kind of what we're learning right now, but we'll we'll be continuing to learn as we go and, and being adaptive because that's really what's important with these these impacts from climate change are is just to be adaptive. Yeah, I think two big things I took from that is something that we've experienced as well. The first is talking about co-benefits. Uh, and that's something that we've really been fine-tuning is, you know, having these conversations with communities or businesses. And oftentimes it's like the co-benefit that people are more interested in. So in the tourism realm, that's around destination management. So uh, we want to see less cars on the road because there's too much congestion, there's not enough parking. So we can talk about that, but less cars on the road is also less emissions, which is the climate action part of our plan. Um, and it's interesting, we interviewed a lot of agencies when we started developing our mitigation, adaptation, resilience plan 
plan. And so many agencies were like, don't, don't talk about climate change, talk about the co-benefits because I think that it's just more, um, it's more relatable, especially to those policy, you know, decision makers say, Hey, we can work on traffic mitigation. It sounds a lot more doable in a four-year term than solving climate change. Um, <laughs> so that is interesting. And that, that rings true to me. And then the, the second part of that is adaptation. And, you know, because of that kind of funny dynamic we have on the coast about having slower um, amounts of sea level rise, it kind of gives us this maybe false sense of, of time to say like we can adapt because even if people are on the fence about climate change or the impacts of it, people are seeing the flooding every year. Um, so it does make sense to say like, okay, well, we're going to see this flooding again next year and the year after that. So how can we start adapting to um, flooding in our town or, you know, these major, these major tides. So very interesting um, to hear you touch on some of those topics as well, but Something else really big um, that came out of, I believe, the Department of Land Conservation Development, but correct me if it's actually the Coastal Management um, Program, is the Sea Level Rise Adaptation Planning Toolkit. I just saw an article come out about it again the other day, and that toolkit includes Sea Level Rise Impact Explorer, Sea Level Rise Impact Assessment Tool, and the Sea Level Rise Planning Guide for Coastal Oregon. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I believe it's a big part of your job as well, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was a big project. We sort of started it at the Department of Land Conservation and Development, just myself and another colleague, as sort of this small project. We're like, oh, we'll just put together some CLRS planning guidance and for local communities. And we soon realized that it was going to be a very big project and that CLRS is complex, which is, I'm sure, no surprise. Um, so we, we took about two years to put these resources together but we um, really wanted to make sure that we had resources that were specific to Oregon and our coastal context, because like I've mentioned a few times, it is a little different than other places around the country um, on the coast. So we wanted to make sure it was adapted to us and our not only our geography and our specific rates of sea level rise, but also our um, regulatory framework and our sort of policy framework in which we already do business. And um, so we started to put these resources together and we came out with three different tools that are meant to be used together, although they can also be used separately. And so we do have an online map viewer that is a combination of various data resources that kind of shows what we're really trying to get at is total water levels, like I mentioned before. So not just sea level rise on its own at a flat tide level, but putting those other piles of water on top of it. So when you have a flood event, when you have high tides, when you have storm surge, what does that all look like? Because really those extreme events are what we really need to be planning for because those are the ones that really have big impacts. So that's the kind of data that we're trying to show on both the outer coast and within our estuaries. And then we have an Excel spreadsheet that is already developed with some automated um, coding to just put in some things in the spreadsheet that are at risk to sea level rise. And it can be anything from coastal public access points, parking lots, 
culverts and bridges to hospitals, churches, community groups, anything that is within that sea level rise planning area, and then walk through it. And this can be done at the staff level or with an organization or at the community level and really talk about what are our feelings about these assets? How important are they to the functionality of the community? Is it something that's redundant and there are multiple of them? So if something happens to this one, it's not a big deal. Or is it something that, um, you know, is going to have a, that's very essential to the community and it will have a big impact if it's flooded or eroded or things like that. So it, kind of helps to come out with a prioritized list of assets or populations that are very vulnerable and at risk to sea level rise so that you can start to plan for those areas first. Because what we all know that every community is already strapped for capacity. They have limited ability to do long-term planning or big capital improvement projects already. And so this is a way to sort of focus it on those areas that are most at risk and to be able to plan for them over time. And then the CORS planning guide is then what? Then it's a list of adaptation strategies that could work in various coastal communities. And it's meant to be a menu of options. So a no one size fits all approach, but really something that can be tailored to the community's priorities and what they feel like are the ways in which they can go about adaptation. So there are some things that are very innovative, creative, and would be probably pretty big to carry out. But then there are also very small sort of run of the mill things that could also be done. So I think there's sort of it depends on the problem and also the community and how they want to address it. So we really hope that it's useful. And like I said before, we're, we're starting to implement these tools in Clatsop County as a pilot project. And we hope to learn a lot from that work as we go along to see if we can tailor these tools and learn from those lessons and make them even better over time and continue to work with communities. So it's definitely a long-term project, but we're happy that we have these tools now to really help us continue it down the road. Yeah, that is an incredible toolkit to have for Oregonians and for our communities. And I like that you just nonchalant were like, well, we decided to put this together. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's something we'll need here in Oregon. Um, And what has, what has the response been? So you spend two years putting these incredible tools together. You know, you have a press release, like here it is, we have it. And what did the response look like? Well, it's kind of varied. Um, I think a lot of what we've been kind of talking about with people is just what the data entails. They kind of want to dig into like, where did it come from? And what is it showing? Um, And uh, I think there's a little bit of people who have that that feeling like sea rise is not an issue in Oregon. We have tectonic uplift. We don't need to worry about this. So it's kind of talking about it and, and trying to explain that there is there is this window in which we are now starting to feel the effects of sea level rise because it cannot, tectonic uplift is going at a steady rate and our, the rate of sea level rise is increasing. It's an exponential curve. So it, it keeps getting bigger. So that's kind of the messaging we've been talking a lot with people now is that actually it is something that we need to worry about. Um, and it's not a big deal, but it's still something we need to think about. And because it's not a huge deal, maybe that makes it a little bit more palatable to do something 
thing about. Um, so that's kind of been a lot of it is just kind of talking about the data, talking about the projections for our coast. And then, um, you know, I think there's just also a lot of hesitation. Like I said, there's there's this capacity issue. And so just kind of talking about that, it's actually not, it's not regulatory. It's not that hard. You can kind of just integrate it into all of your regular decision making as you're doing your capital improvement planning every so many years, as you're doing your transportation system plans, all these things that you already do and have to do, you just integrate sea level rise into that. So it's not something extra, it's just part of your process. And so I think that's really what we're trying to talk to people about now and make it seem like it's not it's not really that hard. It's not a huge deal and it is doable. So that's really what our conversation's been about. Yeah, excellent. I I feel so lucky in Oregon. Um, you know, we had that executive order a couple of years ago from at the time Governor Brown um, really directing state agencies to be working on their climate action plans, their role within a changing climate. And I know that's not the case for all coastal states. And I'm just so curious if there's a listener out there right now that is in a state where there isn't a lot of agency support, that they don't have someone like you, Meg, that's like, you know what, we should really have this tool. Let's get it done. Um, because I think politics um, can really slow that down. So I feel very fortunate as a nonprofit trying to work on some of these actions for the tourism industry to be able to rely on agencies like the Department of Land Conservation Development, like the Department of Transportation, um, to look at what resources exist and really direct our partners and our communities to those things, because that means we also don't have to create them and we're not the people to create those. So um, feel very fortunate to have people like you and agencies like yours in Oregon working towards these collaborative, um, realistic solutions. Uh, So as we start wrapping up, we'll um, kind of come back from that high level of sea level rise um, back down to the King Tides project. Uh, I believe we have one more King Tides this year. Um, Do you have the dates on those? Yeah, it's January 20th through the 22nd. Okay, coming up pretty soon. Um, And are there any events left on the Oregon coast, um, education outreach events around King Tides that people could attend? Yes, in partnership with Coastwatch, we are hosting two more events, one on January 18th at 5.30, and that's a virtual presentation, so anyone from anywhere can join. We have registration information on our website, which is OregonKingTides.net, and uh, then we have an in-person presentation on January 20th at 5.30 in uh, Cannon Beach. And that will be an opportunity to hear more about King Tides, but also a little bit of some project work that's going on. That Clatsop County project on seal rise adaptation planning that I mentioned before, there'll be a little bit of information on that, as well as some other projects that we're doing at the Oregon Coastal Management Program related to seal rise and land use. So it should be a good opportunity to learn a lot about what's going on on the coast. And again, that's on our website. So yeah, should be fun. Excellent. And then in general, you know, can you just talk briefly about the future of the King Tides project? You know, ideally, how does this project move forward, you know, next year, the year after that? Um, in which ways could it grow or improve? Um, what are some of your dream dream goals for this project? Yeah, I've always had lots of ideas about what the King Tides project could be and do. Um, but as we've all talked about already, we are only two staff people part-time doing this. And so it's been challenging to make those dreams come true, so to speak. Um, But I think there is a lot of opportunity for the project to grow and for the data to be used not only by our program, but 
by others. And we're starting to see that here and there with some various groups reaching out to us to get information about the data we collect and how it could be used. We do have a very robust Flickr image library um, that has all of our photos really pretty well tagged. And so they can be searched by, you know, content, location, year, all sorts of ways. And they're all, for the most part, um, free to use as long as they have credit of the photographer. So um, that's a really great resource for people. And I've actually used those King Tides photos for lots of different projects over the years. So I hope that we can continue to grow that. One idea that we're hoping to do over time is sort of collect those images that have been taken in the same location year after year after year since our project started in 2010 and really start to see those changes over the years. Are they getting more impacted? Is the water getting higher? So that we can start to do a little bit more quantitative analysis instead of just qualitative. Um, so I think that's a way that we can grow. You and I, Erica, have also talked about maybe utilizing influence influencers and the power of social media to really get people out there more often um, to really specifically grow the movement and to grow the audiences and who knows about the King Tides project and how you can participate. So I think that's definitely an area of growth. Um, and so we'll just kind of see how it goes. I think the more partnerships we can have, the better the project will do over time, because that's really the power of getting the word out there um, is that grassroots network and, and making sure that's not just me and Jesse, who's the Coast Watch program coordinator doing it all the time, but really we have partnerships from all all sorts of groups um, to help us grow and and see what their ideas are for making the project more useful or more informative. Um, we're always open to new ideas and suggestions. So I hope that we'll continue to grow over time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Meg, so much for joining me today on Big Tourism to talk about the King Tides project. Uh, this is one of my favorite types of episodes when it when it ends on the topic I always talk about, which is these collaborative partnerships between private businesses, nonprofits, and uh, state agencies. So I hope our listeners, whichever category you fall under, um, even if that's just being a visitor and coming to the coast to help us document sea level rise, um, realize that this project, the Oregon King Tides Project, um, is a great example of working collaboratively um, with different types of partners to, to really express what's going on in our coastal region. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Big Tourism on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.